recorded at Get a Grip Studios in Toronto, Canada. Get a Grip Management production and in association with the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Presented by the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, the National Lighting Bureau, the Illuminating Engineering Society, and of course, the International Dark Sky Association. This is Starving for Darkness. Hang on a second here, folks. That's right. Hang on a second. Michael Colligan, co-host of Starving for Darkness here. Just to tell you real quick before we get into the conversation, which is super important for you to hear, that you need to go to keystonetech.com. That's K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com, especially if you're a contractor or a distributor, Greg Eric. That's right. And they're coming out with a new exterior line of product, or they have come out with it, and they're going to continue to add to it, and they're dedicated to making dark sky friendly lighting uh, and potentially dark sky compliant as we go. For now, though, they do have a dark sky full cutoff wall pack, a variety of wattages, Kelvin temperatures, and a precision crafted optical lens that's ideal for increased fixture spacing and uniformity. So less lighting fixtures needed because it, it can provide more light out of the one fixture. So check that out. Go to keystonetech.com. That's right. Hold on. Here comes Starving for Darkness. But before, K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com. Hello, listeners and darkness lovers. Welcome to another episode of Starving for Darkness. My name is Jane Slade, along here with my co-host, Michael Colligan. And we're so excited to bring Peter Vito, a psychophysicist with a wide scope of interests, including light and lighting, perception, physiology, and practical implications. I'm so excited to dig into your wealth of knowledge today, Peter, and we start every episode with the same request would you please tell us about a dark sky experience that you had that left you in a place of awe and feeling human and very earthly yes uh, so i have many but i would like to share one which is kind of weird and i couldn't figure out what it was about so i'd actually like to share it because i'm curious what you say about it and maybe you can solve it for me so it was middle of the night middle of the winter and I was hiking up a mountain, a couple of hours walk where there are no more built roads. So I, have to, I had to leave m my car at the edge of the woods and I just kept walking. And um, it was freezing, but no snow and really dark. So I remember I often had to look up at the crown of the trees just to see the path. It was a single person footpath and I wasn't there for fun. So I had to search for someone. So it was a really distressed situation. And because of that, I occasionally had to stop and yell out really loud, which I know is very uh, inappropriate and not respectful towards uh, the forest. But that was the last of my worries at that time. And otherwise, it was very silent. So whenever I yelled, I could hear the echoes from far away from all the valleys. Um, and otherwise, it was silent, except at some point, I heard some noise from far away from the left. And it came closer, and at some point I recognized that these are deer. And it was at mm -hmm. least three of them, and they came directly to me. And they came up to me very close, 
just a couple of meters away, they stopped. I thought it was strange. I said hello. They said nothing. And I kept walking. And they walked with me. They walked right next to me for quite a while. And I even had one of my yelling sessions while they were there. They didn't seem to mind. When I stopped, they stopped. And then they kept walking with me. And at some point, they got bored or whatever, and they left. And these were not so so i i have seen deer of course before and usually they just run away and i'm sure these are not urbanized deer so no one's feeding them directly and so i tried to read about this and couldn't really find anything um, so i'm wondering what you two knowing more about animals than i do would make out of this i have so much to say um so i think they were helping you I think mm. before you even said the deer, I, I, and you were feeling guilty from this sort of um, cognitive human side uh, point of view where you didn't want to distress the wildlife as if you were other. And what I heard was that you were actually a living thing in crisis. Sounds like an extremely high stress environment. And you were letting that out and you were calling out for help. Uh, you didn't think to anyone but they came and they assisted you and they they were letting you have your your cry for help that's what i hear in that story well i actually haven't thought about this really but it's interesting yeah Thank most you. people have not been alone in a forest at night and and so they they don't they feel foreign in that environment my experience from from wildlife i've been many times in the forest alone at night. And I've seen wildlife. I've seen bears um, at night. Not grizzly bears, but black bears. Um, excuse me. And so, you know, I, I don't think that they would see you any, like a lot of times people think that, that deer are afraid of humans or whatever, but I do think they were comforting you or letting you know that you were, that they were there too. And, mm. um, you know, that, I, I, that's not unusual. And in fact, if you read First Nations literature or you read accounts by um, people from First Nations people, you'll hear a very deep spiritual relationship with wildlife that is like that, what you described, and, and, and probably even more expands upon that. So, yeah, I think they were comforting you. They, were sh they, were, they knew you were scared or they knew you were upset, and they came over and they wanted to say hello and say, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> No, I'm not, I, I actually totally agree with Jane. I, I completely agree with Jane. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I'm surprised that both of you say this. I haven't really thought about this. Um, I, I, I was fortunate to, enough to grow up uh, also spending time at night in, in the forest and stuff like that. So I, it, it was nothing foreign to me, but I never experienced anything such. Where were you? And so the reason where was, uh, this, where was uh, in Hungary. In Hungary, okay. Um, are yeah. you Hungarian? And yes, yes, originally. And yeah. Then, so the the Hungarian uh, I, there was was comforting the Hungarian <laughs> man. I mean, they they know your people. They be, you probably have a very deep relationship with that animal, going back thousands and thousands of years. Um, I um, mean, people think it's crazy, maybe, but I actually believe yeah. that kind of stuff. I, I think that they. You know, there is an, um, you know, they, they have a fear circuit too. Their brains are similar to ours. You would know more than me. I don't know all the terminology, but they would be able to recognize that probably you were afraid and that 
you know, they yes. were, they didn't feel that you were being harmful to them. They felt like they could mm-hmm. comfort you, and they came. We know that dolphins do this, um, mm-hmm. and other oh, cetaceans. Really? Yeah, like that. That okay. they know that dolphins will come and comfort people. And in fact, there are programs where where children um, who are autistic or are, are having trouble with PTSD will encounter. I think it's cetaceans is the type type of animal that that is like that. I think that's the right name. But anyway, dolphins for sure. So, yeah, I think that experience was deeply spiritual, and I think you should look upon it as the deer came to comfort you. <laughs> well, okay. what I think is really interesting about the night and nighttime and the night sky is that it is a shared heritage, not just across humans, but across mm-hmm. all living things. So I think. You know, you we've all seen those videos of um, adult, one type of species caring for the baby of a completely different other species instead of eating it. And that's because there's something about the vulnerable, the, the, the person or the living thing in need that is universal to all living things to want to take care of and assist. So I always think we sort of have this like arrogant view of animals and plants that they don't sort of have this same spectrum of feeling that we do. And maybe they don't articulate it with language, but there's so much wisdom that animals and plants really have. So circling back to our shared heritage of the night, um, I see you hold three degrees, Peter, in psychology. That's amazing. You have a bachelor's, master's, and PhD in psychology. And so please describe your life's work and how you find yourself on the podcast, Starving for Darkness. Oh, my God. Well, what the, <laughs> that's a big question. So yes, I started from research and primarily studying high-level perception. And then later on, I moved closer to low-level perception as well. but this was not lighting yet. So I picked up lighting as a hobby because I had personal sensitivities and I was just curious how to solve them. And of course, to learn, to understand them. And mm-hmm. through doing so, I realized that people in my fields, high level perception, know absolutely nothing about lighting. And unfortunately, probably vice versa. Can and you this actually that... um, define mm-hmm. what high level perception is yes, and yes. low level okay. perception yeah, is? Yeah. yeah. Are you talking so, about consciousness too? Is there a consciousness play in there? I I had the same question, but we're, is there like we're yeah, yeah we're lighting people. We think are you talking about high light levels or yeah? So are you talking about consciousness <laughs> decisions versus sorry. yeah? Yes, I'm sorry. Uh, I try to avoid the consciousness question for now. But <laughs> psychophysics is basically about first measuring something in physical reality and then measuring something in a psychological, perceptual realm, and then trying to find the connections. And first you try to find these connections, and then maybe you're also curious about the mechanisms behind, but that very quickly takes rather towards neuroscience and other related fields. But so if you look at perception as this process, it starts at the low levels, which means the low level, which is closest to the stimulus, So you have light, you have the optics of the eye, you have the retina. And then there's a chain. In some schools, they treat it as a chain, which leads to the high levels. And the chain consists of links, which are distinct. And then you might even look at where they are localized in the nervous system, up eventually in the brain, the high levels, the cortical areas. And when it comes to function, the high levels would be where you have object perception, attention, um, 
integration of different perceptual modalities, integration between perception and action, and potentially also consciousness. But it's a big question really where consciousness is, if it takes place in this hierarchical model at all. But the, the point here, which I think I will circle back to several times, is that the two ends of this process can be measured pretty directly. You can measure light, you can measure what people perceive or with various ways how they act on it. So that's stimulus and response. And traditionally there have been schools which ignore everything between because whatever is between is super murky, messy. We cannot really measure it directly. And they treated it as a, as a black box in some schools. Now, of course, neuroscience is very much in today. They would mainly care about exactly what is right there in the middle. But as I said, it can be treated as a chain, but some schools would argue that it's more like a continuous thread and you cannot mm -hmm. dissect it into elements and no one can measure anything there directly. What you can measure is electrical waves from the scalp of brain function or blood oxygen, oxygenation levels in different side parts of the brain. But so it always takes several steps to figure out how this connects to the actual mechanism and therefore it's messy. Okay, so if I may summarize your very extensive research, then the low level is sort of like the, the point of sensation in a way, and then the high level is more conceptual, the, the impact. Would that be a good way of reframing it? I, I think it's close, yes. Um, okay. Yeah, it's, it's a tough question because all these definitions like sensation, vision, perception, what, what are the overlaps, what are the differences, they are all have to do with where we locate them in this perceptual hierarchy. Uh, mm -hmm. But so the low level, if you look at the low level as, let's say, the retina, whatever takes place in the retina, you are, it's never really sensation. You, you are never, you're definitely never aware of what your retinal cells are responding to, right? Mm -hmm. So then it takes all kinds of steps until a percept is formed. And the percept is what you have, what you have direct access to. You don't see light in a sense, you see your own percept. And so these two endpoints are therefore measurable. We can measure the physical reality through tools, measuring light itself, and we can easily measure percept by simply asking people. And everything between, it's more like trying to figure out what's going on. So what was an important moment for you along your journey of three degrees in psychology that steered you into light and perception? Yeah, I think my own issues. So I started living a life where I had to drive a lot at night mm -hmm. around 2013. And that was exactly when the automated headlights started and when slowly the boom of LEDs started. And I noticed that it is just painful. I used to love to drive and I no longer do. And why is that? And I didn't drive a lot like a professional or whatever, but it was maybe an hour a day at least. And much of it was at night. And so I noticed that it disturbs me. And then I also started to work more. So I noticed that computer screens disturb me. And I just tried to solve what this is all about. I see. And so a lot of your work has focused on digital eye strain. So what mm -hmm. is happening 
in the world today with digital eye strain? Yeah, so that is basically my primary focus right now. Um, so I left, I, I had two postdoc positions and the second one, and the second one I... Keep going, don't worry. Uh, the second one I didn't uh, finish as intended, but I quit and that happened last year. And there were several reasons. Um, there's also friction between what I stand for and what academia is about. And university life, of course, requires you to adhere to that. And so I had problems with that. And since I left, these problems only kept growing. So I'm really happy about mm -hmm. this decision. But I also wanted to spend all of my time on my own projects. And the number one of this is right now building a computer display that eliminates digital eye strain. And wow. uh, yeah, it's super exciting. It took a long time. I think first I didn't have the right approach. Now it seems to work as intended. Uh, we have a fully functional prototype. And actually, by the way, I'm looking for engineers. So if anyone's listening I'm and interested in this topic, I'm particularly looking for people experienced, of course, in non-imaging optics and also in freeform techniques. And I think it's going to be big. I'm really excited about it. Unfortunately, since IP issues are not solved yet, I cannot talk too much uh, publicly. But I'd be happy to discuss with anyone who's interested. So drop me an email. I love that. And we are all about crowdsourcing this conversation to elevate the conversation about light pollution and certainly would love to help you find the right people to bring that to market. Uh, because I think that we all spend so much time in front of screens and it's, mm. you know, I look at my screen time uh, on my iPhone and, you know, it's, it's a lot of time that my eyes are seeing a screen. And so I think that this may be as what you're alluding to in your work. You say that the accumulation of blue light, that that symptom may not be seen in the population for 20 to 30 years. Is that true? Well, no one knows if that's true. I mean, the statement is true that we, we, we are not going to figure it out until that time passes. So in that sense, it is true. Um, it, it's a big debate right now and no one really knows, but mechanistically, we understand that blue light is a stressor and it is mechanistically implicated in age-related macular degeneration and other problems. And uh, it's, it, yeah, it, it very likely is a problem, but mm -hmm. I think it cannot be treated independently of the rest of the spectrum, of when it is presented, etc. So there's a lot more detail to this than having simple metrics of whatever melanopic lux you're talking about mm -hmm. or stuff like that. These mm -hmm. problems are generational sometimes, right? So you have, you know, and I think this is what Marshall McLuhan was talking about when he said, first we shape technology, then technology shapes us. Um, and like that flow is, the, the over the time, people acclimatize and accustomize to the changes. So for example, to have 10 hours of screen time in 1995 would be seem like ridiculous to people. And now it's, it's pretty much standard, um, you know, for every human being. And that's a, not that long. That's my lifetime in my lifetime. So I wanted to ask you about yes, something though. Right. The absence of perception is what I'm, what you, 
you talk when you talked about that percept, the, the you perceive it and then you acknowledge it and it becomes a perception. Is there a definition for something when someone can is seeing something but can't perceive it? And what I mean by that is, sure. for example, you know, once you point out that those LED headlights are very glary to somebody, or you you point out that the TV is really bright, all of a sudden they start to become aware of that and it bothers them, right? And yeah. what is that phenomenon called that when you point to something and say, you know, hey, you know, this just unconscious. I mean, people just yeah, call but it unconscious. How come? <laughs> like, why is it become painful when you perceive it? Like before they perceived um, it, it didn't yeah, yeah. bother them. Yes. And or yes. maybe they didn't notice it or maybe they just were like, oh, that's really bright. And when they're driving yes. their vehicle or they're watching their TV, but then it's pointed out to yeah, them yeah. and all of a sudden it becomes something that hurts them. Is there a phenomenon to that or is there something that we're, you know, we're, yeah, yeah. we're not aware of? It depends on attention. And I think this is a big question when it comes to light sensitivity because mm -hmm. it, it can become uh, basically a vicious circle where you pay more attention and the more attention you pay, the more it hurts, mm -hmm. etc. And so I think many people are stuck in this and many people who have light sensitivity are stuck in such a, a, a positive feedback loop. Mm -hmm. And the way mm -hmm. to get out of it is to break the loop somehow. And that often involves exactly uh, going to what is painful or for those who have severe, uh, uh, severely high light sensitivity, they would naturally tend to hide from all lights. And the way to break it is to train themselves to be exposed to light. That's like and a voluntary comes... approach, a voluntary approach to what you're afraid of. Uh, yes, yes, and kind of intentionally breaking this uh, vicious cycle. And, but there, of course, matters what type of light you use for that. And so the advice, of course, is always daylight in this case. Mm. So with regard to car lights, tell us where, what is wrong with them today and how you foresee this problem becoming solved. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Both both of these questions are long, um, but <laughs> to, to try to make it short, um, the mainstream always tells us that there is this trade-off. And today we have more road visibility for the driver. And by the principle of the thing, it has to come with an equally greater amount of glare to other road users. And this is just simply not true. Because if you think of even the most simplistic model like UGR, luminance uh, is squared in the equation. So when you talk about road illumination in front of the driver, we need luminous flux for that. We need an amount of light which is projected there. And then, of course, the rest, what matters from the perspective of the driver is how that light is distributed. So what the beam pattern looks like. That's all. Mm -hmm. And of course, color and other aspects come on top of it, but, but at the basic level. However, when it comes to glare, of course, more luminous flux will cause more glare, but luminance matters more. And so if you have the same area for the light source and increased luminous flux, you will have higher luminance. But it's much worse than that because during the time this happened, came LEDs, came projector headlights. Mm. So also the size decreased. 
So basically, luminance started to increase exponentially. And this is the primary factor behind glare. And then the secondary factor, probably secondary most important factor, is color. So yes. the bluer color of modern headlights does not contribute a lot to driver visibility. In fact, in many ways, it is worse. However, it is much worse in terms of glare. And so it's a lose-lose situation. And it makes no sense except from the point of view of, well, I guess the technic technical details, which you know very well. So it's more efficient. It's simpler to do with LEDs. And there's a trend. There was a coolness factor to it. And that trend, unfortunately, still lasts. And so how is this trend going to end? Well, first of all, I think the market is slowly, maybe not yet, but slowly will start getting saturated with LEDs. So it no longer really signals that you are rich buying a car with LED headlights because the cheapest ones already have them, etc. So that might eventually, I'm just hoping, uh, contribute to a new trend emerging. And of course, uh, what you, Michael, often say here is that the trend is going to change when there is business behind it. So mm. also when it comes to darkness, I think, I hope something similar could happen that once this trend runs its course and some manufacturer can come up with a visually much more pleasant appearance, then that's going to become cool and suddenly there's going to be business behind it because technically it's already solvable. So I'm already envisioning this car being developed called the Star Chaser. I'm making yeah. this up on the spot <laughs> with like a huge ceiling for... Um, seeing stars and sleeping, maybe, you know, car camping, um, and then really very finely attuned headlights for mm. um, night sky adaptation, you know, the least amount of impact so that you can fully adapt more quickly. Um, but I think you're right, Peter. Yeah, go on, Mike. I just wanted to say that the, the, the trend or the, the, the trend we need to create or the trend that, that is being created needs to be a decoupling of light quantity and safety that those things need to be decoupled from one another very much because um you know just there's this axiomatic presupposition that characterizes all areas that involve artificial or electric light and that is that if you have more of it and it's whiter it's better and that is everywhere it's all it's in the legal system it's in, in the insurance companies the uh, automotive manufacturers, it's everywhere, this this idea that these two things are one and the same. And in, if it goes up exponentially, the more, like even the IES doesn't have any max values of light. There's no maximum amount of light anywhere. So that I think that, you know, human 2.0 um, is going to need to realize that more light does is not better and that the, this idea that, you know, we want to banish the darkness, the, this goes back to the Eiffel Tower in Paris. I mean, this idea of banishing the night. And in fact, we want to embrace the darkness and we want to sell darkness as a commodity. It's the, it, it, everything needs to be turned around with that respect. Can we prove that with any of these perceptual sciences that you're talking about? Can we make a case from your perspective? Yes, I think so, definitely. When it comes to cars, I think all of these questions that you're talking about are exaggerated because everybody's so focused on safety and no one cares about light pollution because actually it's not a huge proportion that light pollution 
that, that vehicular traffic contributes to light pollution, but everybody cares about crash statistics. Now, the problem is that these new headlights do not improve crash statistics. So, so that's one thing to start with. But the other one, so I'm not even going that far right now. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to focus on, okay, people should just realize that we could keep road illumination at the higher standards that we have today and still decrease glare dramatically. Uh, and this is technically already solvable. But then, of course, what you say takes it even a step further and asks, really, how much road illumination do we need for the driver in a, circumstance, in a certain circumstance so that it is safe? For example, I think, I think it was BMW who first... There was a hype about six years ago around laser headlights. And fortunately, it kind of died off. I think it was too expensive and nobody really cared. And LEDs got just ridiculously bright anyway, so it didn't so much need lasers. But the, the marketing uh, around it was that it, it lights up the road to 600 meters ahead, right? So you might be wondering, how, how much do you have to do on the highway so that your stopping distance is 600 meters? Um, it's, it's, it's really pointless, no matter how you look at it. And that's about 800 yards for all you Americans listening. Um, oh, sorry. Yeah, that, 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 just right. throwing it out there for the, for the Brits and the Americans that are still in the, in the dark ages on that. But Thank you. Yeah, 600 meters is a, lo is a long way. Um, it's probably one third of a mile or something like that. It's a long way. Um, yeah, but we need to crack this. It needs to be broken within the general public, this, I, this connection. Um, because I actually think the amount of na uh, electric light we're, we're creating now is actually to an unhealthy level. It's not, it's no longer benign. It's not, all this extra light is unhealthy for us. And we need to make people aware of it so that they can, we can start to make change from the grassroots, Peter. Um, back Very to Jane. Much, yes. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, well, you know, it just, I recently spent some time with my dad and he grew up in New York City in the 40s and 50s. And I asked him, I said, could you see the stars in New York? And he said, yeah. You know, it wasn't like the most amazing star view he ever had, but he could see them. And New Yorkers can't see the stars. I mean, uh, maybe you can see one or two in the outskirts of this very large city, but it's a terrible night sky view. And I say that because no one goes back to the 50s thinking, you know, that was like a dark age of lighting. So it's totally a false dichotomy, what we're saying that more light on the headlight, you know, is, is equals, you know, removing that light is, is, is less safe. Um, and the same thing with our lighting in cities where we're creating this false dichotomy that doesn't really exist. And to your point, Mike, earlier, which is I think that we have to go back and reshape technology once we see these negative influences. And so that's where we rely on research like yours, Peter, to really try to bring down what is the most important aspect of light for safety and what can we leave. Um, and I know you do so much research on pedestrian visibility, uh, biker vi visibility. Um, so let's talk about some of the, the new yes. changes that we see, which I feel like it used to be all about uniformity and now it's more about contrast, but agree or disagree, tell me what you're seeing in your research. Yeah, so, so when it comes to research, I did some research on this. Uh, now this is kind of a secondary topic for me, which I just do because I think it's important. So it's 
kind of a hobby, but to also reflect to what Michael just said, I agree that um, it would be very important to just make people realize this, to, to educate, if that's the right word. I think it would sound cocky if I would say I try to educate. I'm definitely not the right person to do this because I cannot speak so eloquently as you can, but I'm trying my best and I'm starting to be more active in this group, softlights.org and some others who are campaigning for uh, less glare on the roads. And I started to make short YouTube videos explaining the, the basics around this. And so this is just a hobby, but I hope that indeed if people would realize this, uh, that could set up a change from the side of business because they would buy different products. And to also tie it back to my little illustration on the scale of perception and low level and high level, I think lighting as a field is very much fixated on the low levels. And understandably, of course, this in involves measuring light itself, but then all the emphasis is on retina, on the retina mm. and retinal models. And this, when it comes to, let's say, when it comes to traffic, this leads to the fixation on detection. And the brighter something is, the faster you detect it, that's the mantra and that's all that matters. But then, I mean, this is a natural process and all natural processes have an optimum, which I believe we have reached long ago. And you can detect it, but after that point, if it gets brighter, it actually slows you down. It makes your reaction slower. And what's more, we have a limited attentional capacity. And so if everything is bright, your attention is automatically drawn at the low level to these bright spots. But what really matters in scene perception, in understanding a traffic scenario, is not low-level factors. It is high-level perception. It is objects. You don't care about where the brightest light points are. You care about where the cyclist, are, where the cyclist is, where the pedestrians are, where the cars are. You want to understand the whole intersection. And for that, we have to make cars and other road users look the closest at night to how they look during the day. And so mm. with today's technology, it would be absolutely possible to use light guides, not to make DRLs and taillights the thinnest possible so that they still meet, you know, now there is regulation on how big the surface of a tail lamp has to be. And so what happens is that we have extremely long and thin stripes of hugely glaring LED uh, light guides. Now instead, if the surface size would increase, luminance could decrease, and object perception could be enhanced if the shape of that light was not just an arbitrary dot or a line, but it would actually resemble what the car looks like. And this is even more important when it comes to cyclists and pedestrians. And there has been a lot of research on this. I also took part in some of that, uh, but only for pedestrians and cyclists and basically nothing for cars. But I think the same concept can be taken up to all objects because eventually this is about object perception. And if you have these larger but less luminous surfaces, uh, then glare is also reduced and object perception is enhanced. Conversely, if you have the brighter spots on all cars, since DRLs have been mandated, first in Canada, and it was only halogens back then, right? And still all the cyclists were outraged 
that this is putting them into a disadvantageous position right from the get-go because all cars will have lamps and they don't. And since then, this has only gotten way worse mm. to the point where all parents now in busier places in England, I've seen this a lot and it's so painful, they just put LEDs on everyone and everything. All the children have LEDs and retro ref reflective vests and all the cyclists have the brightest LEDs because it's cheap and it's small and it's practical. But when the car driver can see a glaring dot somewhere, they don't know if it's a cyclist. They don't know how far it is. They don't know what it is. They don't know how fast it goes. Instead, if you put retroreflective tapes on the spokes and on the pedals, immediately the most, the most informative parts of the object become obvious. And these give cues of not only distance, identity, size, but also speed, direction, everything that you, you really need to know and everything that you perceive immediately uh, when it is bright outside. But during the night, we should just try to imitate that as much as possible. So you're saying the shape and the formative shape of the reflection is... Um, so, it, like you said, the pedals on the spokes. So, if you're if you're looking down the road and you're driving, and your headlights hit a reflective tape, that is the shape of the, the object that is it is is more powerful to that immediate perception that you were talking about earlier in the show than having a bright LED vest blinking and whatever. It's it's Very a much. better cue. Isn't that interesting? Yes. That you know, all this time and study of of human eyes and all, so we don't even know how we see yet, really. Like we can't yeah, even yeah, make, exactly. yeah, exactly. we can't even That's make things saying. that help my, us see, you know. But in my field, that is what people start with. It's just in lighting, and of course, you have been exposed to lighting researchers, etc. Mm -hmm. They are so fixated on these low levels, and most of them don't even try to incorporate eye movements, which is mm -hmm. a whole another story and and a huge topic, and object perception and the interaction between action and perception and all these things which matter a lot in traffic. Uh, but, of course, it's simpler to put metrics on simple luminance and whatever, and so people are stuck with that. But I think it's going to change slowly. A TM, what's the color rendering technical memorandum that they're, they're, they've put out recently? Well, TM20, is it? Thir 30, TM30, and then it? it originally came out in 15, but I think there's been others since. So I memorized it as TM3015, which was the new color uh, assessment to replace uh, C CRI, which yes. is your color rendering index, which is only one number versus a much more complex set of uh, factors. There's something about TM30 that reflects the perception, though. That's that's what I was referring to with, with mm. that. There's a there's a there's a nod, not an acceptance, but a nod towards depth. Like it's, we often think like when you think of color rendering index or like lighting metrics, older lighting metrics in general, they're all linear scales, as if the world could be, you know, measured like a ruler. But we have a th we're, our world is three dimensional, and then. Uh, tonal as well so it can be brighter or darker mm. in that and so these metrics they they need to be deeper and they need to be they need to understand your science which is that of perception how do humans go about knowing they should see something like you see all manner of things you're driving down the road you see all kinds of things but how do you know that you should pay attention to that thing that's what that's what you're talking about is like making something obviously seen to a driver that they should see it 
How do we do that? Yes. That's never the conversation. Yes. It's like, make it brighter. Just make it brighter. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Yeah. So in terms of terminology, this is the difference between simple detection, which is mostly what studies in this field measure, versus identification and com solving a complex task mm -hmm. and actual real-life reactions, as opposed to reaction times to detection. And that's why, like, the simplest scenario. when runners on the sidewalk start wearing all these LED vests and bicycles have these LED bright vests, it's actually making things worse, not better. Because now the driver yeah. doesn't know what he's supposed or she's supposed to pay attention yeah. to. Yeah, yeah. Your attention is limited. So yes. you shouldn't be drawn automatically to locations which are irrelevant. That's why all these glare bombs on the side of the road are actually so dangerous because they yeah. distract you. They make you look at them because they're so bright because you're yes. wanting to know why someone's shining a light in your eyes. Oh, it's just a wall pack on a building. But yeah, I, I, I totally under you're, you're bringing perception into the lighting business. It's so important. It's so yeah. obviously lacking. Well, and it's not just about you wanting to know that. So here, here there's also confusions in, in, again, levels of perception. So the... The earliest cues that draw attention are low-level cues, like brightness. And that happens usually on an automatic level. And by high-level perception, mm -hmm. it can be overwritten to a certain degree. So if you can see an object, then the object hood is going to be more salient, especially if it's relevant to your task, than a salient low-level feature like brightness. However, when these objects are missing or when you are confused anyway, then low level, the low level salience is primary and it drives mm. eye movements automatically. So when people say, don't look into the headlights, it is total BS because you cannot do it. You do look at it. And even people who, who think that they don't, they do. They very often do. And you are usually unconscious of where you look. And the eyes do all kinds of things uh, which are not independent of attention, but when you think that you attend to a certain location, your eyes are still moving all over the place to give you the most informative picture, even of that location uh, that your attention is on. We so want to inc increase the relevant perception. Like that's what that's what exactly. it should be about. Like increasing relevant perception, but it exactly. just tur it turns into let's just put more light on it, and everyone yes. lights everywhere. Yeah, it's um, it's an it's a very it's a very um, uh, intractable problem um, because it crosses. This lighting seems to cross so many disciplines um, that you wouldn't even think of, like perceptual psychology. I never thought of that as in terms of it being part of the lighting science. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's very interesting. Yes, and I hear this from many people. I actually just talked a couple of months ago to a professor. He's a senior in his field in lighting engineering. Huge knowledge, wonderful uh, person. And I learned a lot from even our short discussion. But as we talked about glare and related stuff, it turned out that his ideal is that if we could only gather all our knowledge about only the retina and the optics of the eye into one model, we could learn basically everything about perception. And to the psychologist, you know, this is like, whoa, I mean, this is very offensive. Do, do you say that 150 years of research in psychology was, was complete waste? And, and of course, there are countless examples to why this doesn't work. But those examples, I think, are not known by lighting researchers. And this is nothing against them. 
these are this question is also about academic bubbles and how different fields don't necessarily talk to each other until there is a mm. grant set up for exactly that collaboration or whatever and i think that's coming i was watching your youtube video today and you had a quote about someone saying that in the north this was a scandinavian country that light yeah, was yeah. more of a surface than a point and it's such an amazing point point. and a while back i actually did hear about someone theorizing that light fixtures were going to be obsolete because why do you need to put you know a can in the ceiling when you could actually create a luminous surface and beautifully light that and while that's maybe not the most sustainable building wise to just create luminous surfaces everywhere there's a real psychological point to it and that does touch upon some of like the way uh japanese lighting sort of has those transoms of luminous um light that can sort of come through and then light the surface and so that has been done in different ways in building throughout our world but i do think it's really interesting how you say that the way that we're sort of building up perception on city streets to create so-called visibility for pedestrians and bicyclists is with these tiny point sources that have been governed to be tiny point sources which then turn into be glare bombs, which then draw our attention um, sort of unfairly because it's overridden by our systems of perception to focus to the brightest spot sometimes, even if we know not to. So that's just all fascinating. And this is where I want to go spiritually with this conversation, which is that our visual systems are, the in terms of all of our senses, it's our visual system that has so much data coming. There's no possible way we could actually ever collect and and analyze all of it so there's actually a choice that each of us is making at every moment and there's a a quote which is that energy goes where attention flows and so i feel like your work is you know we're talking about safety and streets but this could be taken to such further levels of saying how can we make spaces feel comfortable calming um you know, provoking. How can we do this on a level that is actually bringing in psychology uh, and and our systems of reaction to light in a way that really cultivates a better environment for all of us? And I'm just wondering how you think about um, how we could bring this to the next level. Do you have any um, thoughts about that? Yeah, it's very nice that you connected this to the quote. It was actually Nanak Mathiasen, if anyone wants to look it up. And I never thought about this, but indeed, as you say, it's, it's the same issue with traffic safety and with how to make a room look more pleasant. I actually, I, I never thought about this, but I do this all the time since I'm kind of sensitive to this, that I point the lights towards the wall. And mm -hmm. for me, it's always, all the light is always reflected from the wall. Uh, and, and with LEDs, this is so obvious because the biggest issue with LEDs is glare from the tiny size that they have and the light intensity distribution that they have. And so obviously they should be somehow altered in space. Now, if that's with light guides or whatever, uh, there are many technical solutions already existing for this and freeform optics could help with this hugely I've seen many patents on this actually also for automotive to, to, to so, so it's possible. It, it really seems possible uh, to create um, similar beam patterns or any beam pattern that you wish 
from various shapes and sizes and by the size of course you can scale the luminance and then as you said it becomes a similar issue for cars as for indoor lighting so i think I technologically you know more about that but technologically this is feasible i can't believe we've been speaking for 46 minutes by the way i can't believe that anyway so i agree i i can't believe it but anyway so um i just looked at it right now it's like whoa um what i've been saying i've spoken to many lighting scientists okay and they are focused right now on so the non they call it the non-energy benefits or um you know human centric lighting or circadian you know systems and they they can't they don't even know what they're trying to call it yet but many of them i've asked this question to and I, and i i'm not going to ask this question i'm going to sort of give you the give it to you and then we're going to step back and i want you to look at it with me okay so when you're trying to solve a problem or there or there is a problem or something you know is wrong um, we certainly know how to use light to hurt people. Like you could come up with a lighting system and torture someone with it. We know how to do that. I mean, every every person in the lighting business for 15 years could, you know, say, okay, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to flick the lights on and off on this guy all, all day long, all night long. And that person will go crazy, actually, not and not very long, not, and not that long a time. Casinos know this, okay? Casinos know that if you if you shine lights directly into a human being's eye that he'll give you his paycheck right they know this so what i always suggested well why not take all the things that we know are bad and infer the opposite is a place to look for something good right and when you were talking about indirect lighting like the best lighting systems where people feel the most comfortable are 100 percent indirect i know this only from my anecdotal experience in lighting the people that have indirect luminaires hung from a ceiling at about two feet where the light shines up on the ceiling and out and down whether they're led or fluorescent or whatever those are the nicest environments absolutely 100 percent where the light is reflected there's like a mixing of light where the light is mixed up and smashed against stuff and sort of smoothed out leds make this worse because they have that diode where you have this really i don't know what the right um term is but let's call it a um a uh, stria of light is is very direct, right? Hitting people in their right in the eye, hitting them literally. So, can we take all these negatives? I see on your website here, flicker is a huge problem with outdoor street lighting right now. A lot of times, the people we talk to from soft lights, when they're talking about Kelvin temperature bothering them, they actually mean flicker because. It's not just the, it's really the flicker that's hurting them. I, I, I've come to believe that in listening to their descriptions. They sound exactly like what Dr. Arnold Wilkins was talking about, the symptoms of people who suffer from flicker problems. So we have, we know we can create all these problems, these health problems, chronic health problems in people using lighting. Why doesn't the industry, or can we take the industry and say, let's focus on the opposite of all of this and see if we can actually test that against the use cases that already exist so it's not like you have to set people up in an experiment where you're going to hurt one of them and help the other one, which would be unethical. You have two streets in Stouffville. They both have bad lighting on them. Fix the other one and see if people report sleeping better on that street or something. Like you don't have to create a bad use case. How come the, how, why are we not focused on doing these opposites? Why are we always chasing something new instead of looking at the, what the bad thing is and doing the opposite of that? How come it, it doesn't seem that complicated to me, Peter? Yes, and you hit the nail on the head when you said that ask the neighbors how they sleep. This is what's missing. So the lighting industry, when I said that 
I think it's out of balance and, and, and the focus is too much on the low level stuff and on the retinal and building the retinal models. The problem with this is that we don't even know how much we don't know. And each decade, mm. this model changes with a new receptor that gets discovered or whatever. So building on, this, on these retinal models and focusing too much on that, of course, the models will be tested in some kind of perceptual experiment. But those are super simplistic and usually biased some way, because, mm -hmm. of course, the one who builds, etc. So, so there should be much more focus on the two ends of perception, light and the human who is perceiving that. And not so much on these models, which are wonderful. I'm, I'm not against anyone who's doing these models because it's exciting work and it's, it's really bringing us new knowledge about mechanisms or whatever. But when it comes to the implementation, there what really should matter is, as you say, asking people what they perceive. And the knowledge is there and there's, it's just not really incorporated because the focus is so much on the right now trendy models of whatever this uh, melanopic story now and whatever is the hype mm -hmm. at the moment. And that keeps changing. To me, the, the t to me, the two metrics are this. We know we can disrupt people's sleep with light. Can we not disrupt it? That would be, yes. yeah, yeah. that's the gold yeah. standard. And this is just the that, evolutionary logics of going back to what is natural. And that is never direct light because you don't look directly into the sun. And mm -hmm. that is not all about perception. And again, how many talks have you heard where the introduction was about, oh, we have now, we want to do now uh, human-centric lighting, which, which is about non-visual effects and physiology, this and that. And what is the solution? We are going to imitate the color of sunlight as it changes through the day. So there's this logical twist there, which is the most basic logical error and nobody seems to realize that, okay, are you talking about perception or are you talking about physiology? So again, if you just tie it back to whatever is natural, you will not be biased by the five receptors that we know and, and, and all the metrics are based on the five points on the spectrum where the, the measurements are most important. And of course, there's the bell curve around them and they overlap, I know that. But still, we have this perceptual bias. But then, if you want to talk about physiology, you should put this perceptual bias aside. And again, mm -hmm. this ties back to this focus on the low level, current state of the art of what do we know about the retina. I'm gonna say something the, awful. We, I'm going to say something. It's like they're trying to trick people into being healthy or something. There's probably some marketing behind this, yes. Yes. Like, I, you know what I'm saying? It's like, I, I am a, I'm very suspicious. The lighting industry, Jane, as we know, has been a snake oil industry for many decades when it comes to health effects. And I know that a lot of the researchers are doing a lot of great work. But I'm not sure that work is translating properly to the corporate world and then into products and labeling of products correctly and deploying them correctly. I, I don't think that's happening everywhere. I think it's happening in some small places, but most of the place, most people are swinging from the trees with a knife in their teeth, teeth trying to make a sale. And I, I, I'm one of those people, so I, I understand what's happening. Sorry, Jane. I'm kind of. I'm kind of. I'm. No, Peter's, I, I completely Peter's amazing. understand. <laughs> So there's, you know, I, those daylight bulbs, uh, and you know, what's, what I think is hilarious about it is that people go to the store and they're like, daylight, of course, that's what I want. Sure. And then they get at home and it's 
this ridiculously blue light. Yeah. And there's no possible way to recreate all of the infinite, beautiful re-reflections that occur on the outside with the sun, which is our only point source, naturally speaking. And so we only had one point source to deal with. Well, we had the moon too at night, but these two, these were our point sources. Now we have point sources everywhere. And that's definitely a shift from where we were evolutionarily speaking in our perception. And so my, I am not a scientist. I'm a citizen scientist. And my Rosetta Stone is the natural daylight cycle. And that's what I go by because I feel like that's what I know is to be the truth and that I can't, I can't mess with that. So I understand what you're saying, Peter, that it's like, what are you actually measuring? Are we going by perception? Because you could fool perception. Or are you going with physiology, which I don't know if you could fool physiology. I bet you could. But um, I think it's probably a sounder barometer for how good your lighting is. And Mike, to your point, you know, there are a lot of circadian systems that are a racket because you cannot recreate the exterior inside for intensity levels, for all of the re-reflections, why a single daylight bulb does not work. So all of these things can't be um, brought inside. And and that actually brings me to another point, Peter, about your work. You, you wrote a paper on daylighting and infrared and why we need to research infrared more. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, as you were talking about this, I was also thinking that exactly this is where this ties. Because if you are biased by perception, let alone if you are biased by our current models of perception, again, which are based on these five receptors, then the argument seems logical to, to just replicate the color. And then mm -hmm. you can put a simple metric to the amount of blue light and treat it as a unit which, which stands on its own. But it's not how it really works. There is interaction between different frequencies and there's tons of research on this which is completely ignored by the field of lighting, whoever knows why. And this has come up decade after decade occasionally and whoever mentioned it was immediately bashed and ridiculed. And when I wrote that paper I knew that I had nothing to lose so for me it was easy. But what was surprising is the reaction because many people contacted me afterwards including big names in the field, saying that, of course, they have been following this topic and they never speak about it openly. And also since then, they haven't spoken about it openly. But they were happy that they could uh, share and interact with me, who have spoken about it. And I think it's going to, eventually it has to surface. But there's this huge gap between, again, just different fields of research not talking to each other. This has been known for five decades or whatever, yeah, in biology and in medical applications. What is known? Are... What is known? <clears throat> Sorry, what is... yeah. So, yeah, so the physiological effects of near-infrared light, which if you want to put it in general terms, blue light, which now everyone is focused on, is a stressor. This doesn't mean it's bad. It has good and bad sides, and it has its place in the circadian cycle, etc. And similarly, most likely all other frequencies, but less focused now on infrared or near-infrared. This includes deep red, but also frequencies that we cannot perceive. It has a more or less an opposite effect. It, it aids in recovery. It induces sleep before night. 
and it interacts with blue light exposure. So when blue light comes on its own, that has a different and actually more harmful effect on tissues than when the tissue is primed by red light already. So there is physiological interactions between the different frequencies, and this has been studied a lot. It still needs to be studied way, way more. But So that's again, a human's relationship with fire, right? That's what it is. Exactly. So, so this yes. leads back to fire, and this leads back to incandescent lights which are being banned, and mm -hmm. this leads back to all the efficiency questions. I believe why the lighting industry really doesn't want to recognize this problem, but in medical applications it is so obvious. And also when it the usual counter-argument is that in therapeutic applications the dosages are not comparable to outdoor daylight. This is absolutely not true. In many applications they are, but most of all, we, we cannot count dosages here because we don't understand it well enough because there's attenuation. I got a dosage question for you. I got a dosage question for you, okay? So my father-in-law has an, a sauna um, in his cottage, okay? And it's a cast iron sauna. It's 70 years old, okay? And when you light that thing up, you can feel the heat coming out of it. That's infrared, is it not? Is that infrared energy? It's just not doesn't have any light yes. because the light's encased. You can feel that. It does something for you that is good for you. And I am positive that almost every northern culture, when I've looked far enough, does saunas. The Finns do it. The Very Swedes much. do it. The Russians yeah. do it. The Japanese do it. The First Nations people in, in North America do this hot rock kind of sauna thing. There's some massive health impact that that has on people. I think they talk about heat shock proteins or something like that that you get from a sauna. I think there's it's something it doesn't have to do with the heat. It has to do with the hotness of the sauna and the and the infrared radiation or whatever the heck that technical term for it is that's good for humans. I'm and from yes, you get it from a fire, you get it from a sauna, you get it from different sources like that. I'm I'm positive there's some relation to that. Yes, go ahead, Jane. Oh. No, I, I mean, I'm fascinated because I, I know infrared uh, is used in rheumatology for joint pain. Um, I know that it's sort of been an out there kind of um, medicine, which it's kind of funny when you think about it being out there has actually been used for thousands of years. Um, and the, what you're making me think about in these dosage of frequencies and different frequencies coming together and dovetailing is that um, what I've learned is that actually if you get a circadian dose of light, so you go out when you wake up and you get 20 minutes of light, actually that light starts your circadian clock for the day and provides a buffer for stray light you may receive after hours. So even if it's like after dark and I get, and I do look at my phone because I got that dose of light in the morning, I'm actually buffered from the negative impacts of that light at night. So you're just actually expanding my knowledge by saying, well, also when we dovetail these natural sources of light, when we prime the body with infrared and then you get blue light dosage, it actually may be more healthy um, to have those frequencies combined. So I think there's something very dangerous in the way that we have separated light from itself, where LEDs are really only part of the spectrum and very focused in the blue range a lot of the time. And so what is this division of the spectrum doing to our bodies and our senses of perception? It's a fascinating topic. 
Right, and we will never have a complete understanding of all the mechanisms, and that always leads to daylight. For example, just to, if we have time for one quick example about yes. the application yeah. of near-infrared, Mike Hüttemann uh, has wonderful research on how to use this in resuscitation. So what happens when someone dies is as the blood flow stops, the gas supply, by using his car analogy, gradually tapers down. And as it does, the mitochondrium, which is the gas pedal for the cell, basically presses the gas deeper and deeper. And when everything freezes, eventually, the cell freezes in a point where it is not really damaged yet. It's kind of dead, but it's not damaged yet. But the accelerator is all the way to the floor. And when resuscitation mm -hmm. happens, basically, everything restarts with full steam ahead, and that's when the cells burst. And so, because different frequencies of light can have different physiological effects, or do have different physiological effects, he just tried to find the right frequency to, to give the signal to this mitochondrion to let off the gas. And so he, he tested, and this is now in application already two years ago, or one, two years ago when I heard him speak about this. He has finished several experiments on pigs, and it works wonderfully, and they can really save uh, resuscitation patients. I believe they are already doing this on humans now with a simple helmet, just a lot of LEDs, high power with the right frequency during or before resuscitation, uh, radiating the brain. But when you do it with the wrong frequency, just 50 nanometers to the side of the right frequency band, it can, has the, it can have the exact opposite effect. So wow. again, one can play with play with this and one can in in specific applications it's wonderful to trick biology and to 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 use this cautiously for certain certain goals however eventually for a healthy person it's the safest to assume is that you need daylight where all these different as different effects come in the right proportion and now with the also there have been it's going up and down, but there's hype around the infrasonas and what, whatever. So you can choose your frequencies for whatever you want to do with it. But LEDs are fairly narrow band. And so it's always a bit of an experimentation because we don't yet fully understand. If you take a truly broad spectrum uh, light source, particularly if it's natural light or something very similar to that, that's your safest bet. Jane, I know we have to wrap up, but I, I just I have to make I have to make uh, one more one more point. So, I I'm uh, I read all different kinds of books about different subjects like this. Okay, so I'm all over the place, and there's two things that I think drove human evolution. Okay, and I'm gonna just from like you know people say we evolved from you know the Serengeti or whatever and came up, and I think the first one is that uh, firelight. I think our our when we established the ability to create fires and be safe around a fire, it, it caused some cognitive development or the expansion of our minds. And I think the second thing is the fact that human females hide their ovulation. I think those two things, um, I, I, yeah, Jane's giving me a weird look. No other animals do that. Um, I think, I don't know if whales do or something. No other I can't animals remember. wear clothes either. So, so right but, back at you, right? So, man uh, in a suit. Yeah. So <laughs> I, 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 I just, just a comment of all the books I've read on human evolution and all that sort of stuff. The most misunderstood 
areas is a relationship to fire and infrared light and that and the fact that human females hide their ovulation even from themselves in a certain way so they don't know i'm not i'm just calling out that you could go there and and call out the female gender or you could say that no other animal wears clothes i think that's too much better yeah that too we could go we could go right to adam and eve or whatever you want (laughs) But I just think those two things are the most interesting unexplored areas of fields that I think would, would shine a huge light on human consciousness and development if we understood them better, why those two things occur and um, in, in, our, in our species and, and how we differentiate or, and how we've grown to become such a cognitive species. But yeah, there you go. I said it. Sorry, Jane. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. We can agree to disagree. And um, my question for you, Peter, is because we are over and I want to invite you back. I want to talk next time about eye movement and perception. There's so much that we could really talk about. So um, I think that you've really uncovered a hole in the research of light, which is that we totally do focus on the low level perception of brightness. And, And how can we get to a much broader understanding of how we really bring in um, human perception of light and form. So I think that's fascinating. So I'm going to leave you with one question um, for our final comment from you, which is why does night matter? To me, it matters because of sleep. I just love to sleep. (laughs) And I love to sleep so much that I also like to talk about it. So maybe that's also... (laughs) Yes, we'll discuss sleep next time. I'd love to hear your point of view on sleep. Well, thank you so much. It was wonderful to have you. Thank you very much. It was fun. Thanks, Peter. Yeah. Hey, don't go anywhere yet because we have some instructions for you. It's Michael and Greg from Get a Grip on Lighting. Yeah, we do the ads for Starving for Darkness. You got to go to keystonetech.com. That's K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com. Light made easy, Greg. You've been rattled that off real well. Uh, there's a new line of exterior fixtures from Keystone that they have available, and they're going to continue to expand on it, and they're doing things right. And one of those that they're doing right is in their wall packs, they're making them full cut off. That's going to eliminate undesirable sky glow and glare. And that's what we all want. It looks nice. It fits a profile of a lot of your old nasty fixtures and has multiple wattages and kelvins that can cover you there. Get rid of those old nasties. Go to keystonetech.com. That's K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com. Thanks for listening to Starving for Darkness. Bye for now.